In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Well, here we are, almost a full week into the new year already. The last of the 20 teens, which is good because that just sounds lame, doesn't it? Won't it be so much more exciting to talk about the 20s? Like, that'll be good. We'll look forward to that. But even if a new year is nothing more than the flipping of a man-made calendar, there's still something about it that boosts our optimism, that renews our hope. Each new year is formless and empty at the start, begging the question, what will the Spirit of God create in us through this year? Last summer, our preaching team got together to brainstorm some direction for 2019. We were thinking about where we wanted to go in our teaching series, and there were a couple of things that we talked about at the onset before we started getting really creative. We said we wanted to talk about our core beliefs, these things that as a community we really gather around that help provide shape and structure to our faith. And so we're going to be weaving those in throughout the year. We're not doing a series on core beliefs, but we're going to, we've been intentional about creating series that touch on those things. And we also talked about how we can engage the Bible in creative and memorable ways. And so that's another thing that we're going to do this uh, over the course of the year. Um, But we're starting off this year with a series called, Hello, My Name is God. That's where we're starting this year, and this is why we have these name tags. I'll come back to them in a little bit. We're going to ask some important questions this month. How is God portrayed in the Bible? How do we see God revealing himself? And what kind of portraits did past generations of believers paint of God? How does Scripture help us understand and possibly misunderstand who God is? Eugene Peterson writes, God and His ways are not what most of us think. Most of what we're told about God and His ways by our friends on the street or read about Him in the papers or view on television or think up on our own is simply wrong. Maybe not dead wrong, but wrong enough to mess up the way we live. So the real question is, who is God and what are God's ways? And that's what we're going to be talking about this month. And what better place to start off a new year than at the very, very beginning? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, 
seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times, the days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. 
Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he was doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This beautiful opening scene of the Bible introduces us to its main character. In the beginning, God. Now, perhaps the most obvious and important thing that these first few words of Genesis reveal is that God is the source of all being. Over the holidays, New Year's Eve, actually, our family went out with some friends and we went to see uh, the movie Aquaman. If you're looking for a real kind of deep, meaningful, soul-searching movie, I would recommend another one. But if you want some good entertainment, this is it. Now, this man who, at the very beginning, he comes from the bottom of the ocean and rescues this Russian submarine that's under attack, and and you ask the question, how can he do that? And the movie answers the question for you, because it immediately goes back into this backstory of when he was a little baby, how his mom and dad got together, how he started, where these powers came from, and you begin to understand, oh, that makes sense. Now I understand how Aquaman can do all of these things. But there's no backstory to God. The Bible starts off with God speaking and the world coming into existence and all of this acts of creation. There's nothing that says, okay, now let's tell you where God came from. Because God is at the beginning. For eons now, while challenging to fully understand this, this was almost universally accepted, that there is God behind everything. In fact, there's a psalm that says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. The idea, how could anyone believe that there is no God running or ruling this world? But today, and even here this morning, there is not a universal acceptance of God's existence. Yes, even here in church. We're not a group of people here where we all believe exactly the same thing. This is a place where the idea of God will be inspiring and hopefully generate belief and faith. But I think we all understand that even the idea of believing in God is not something that is universally accepted in our world anymore. Charles Taylor, a philosopher, writes, what we've seen is a move from a society where belief in God is unchallenged and indeed unproblematic to one in which it is understood to be one option among others and frequently not the easiest to embrace. And I know this isn't news to you, being required all All of us live and work and play in a world where belief in God is becoming less important to people and is sometimes even seen as problematic. There are all kinds of critics who say, well, because people believe in God, this happens. And because uh, of, of the belief in God or of faith, you know, people do all these kinds of negative things. So actually believing in God in some people's eyes is a very negative thing. And so right out of the gates here, these first words of Genesis invite us to have faith. And perhaps we're better off for it. Being required to have faith that God is the source of all being. That everything that we see, taste, touch, smell, know, and feel begins in God. Now when we talk about God, as we're going to be doing a lot this this, uh, series in January, when we talk about God, we're pressed to speak about something that we cannot speak about. Now, I wrote that sentence last week, and my memory went back to a conversation I had with someone in our early 
the embassy, our student church, and, and she was talking about how on a typical Monday night, which is when our student church met, she said on a typical Monday night, like five minutes after Brandon starts talking, I totally zone out. Like, I don't have a clue what he's talking about. And when I heard that, I was kind of insulted, and then I was kind of encouraged. Because I was like, well, I'm glad that I'm saying things that are, that are challenging you to think a little bit, right? Uh, so this morning, there are going to be a couple of things that you may be tempted to zone out, um, but it's important for us to think about this. Any language that we use about God defines and therefore in some way limits God. And so we need to be cautious, because if we define God, say, well, God is this, then we have somehow put him into a box or, or created a little cage for him to be in. And, and how can he be God if he's in a box that we have defined ourselves? Hmm, that's difficult. Okay, let me give you a couple of illustrations to, uh, to talk, tell you what I'm talking about here. Uh, a lot of us in this room were probably really looking forward to watching a gold medal hockey game last night, but I'm guessing that nobody here watched Finland win the, world, the gold medal from the World Juniors um, because a few nights earlier we were excited watching Canada. And of course, in the last minute of play, they gave up the tying goal and over time gave up the losing goal. And at the end of the game, we see the Canadian goalie in defeat and Finland all excited. And then anyone who was watching the game probably did exactly the same thing I did. It's like as soon as they started raising the Finnish flag in the stadium, we all turned it off. All right? You know what I'm talking about. I don't need to see this. Now, it's an interesting thing, because if, if the situation was reversed, had Canada won, there is nobody in this country who would turn off the television as the Canadian flag were being raised to the rafters, right? And the national anthem was being sung. But really, what is a flag? I mean, a flag is just a piece of material with different colors on it in different patterns. That's all it is. All the difference between the Finnish flag and the Canadian flag is that they're different colors, and they have different patterns on them. But one of them, we turn off, and the other, we kind of stand at attention, put our hand over our heart or something like that. Why is that? Because it's, it's just a flag, but then it's actually so much more than a flag because it points to all kinds of things. It points to a big part of our identity. Okay, another idea. Think about the phrase, I love you. Now, if someone were to say, like if I say I love you to one of my children or to my wife, and they were to say, well, what do you mean by that? I'd actually be hard-pressed to nail down what I mean when I say that but I'm going to continue to say that anyways. If I were to like, tell Melissa today, she's away at a hockey game with Jude this morning, but if I were to tell her, you know what, honey, I've decided that from now on, you know, I'm not going to say I love you, because really they're just words. So I'm not going to tell you I love you anymore. How happy do you think the state of my marriage is going to be, really? It's not going to go too well, is it? Because they're just words, but they're words that point to something so much beyond words. All of these things. And so all of the speech about God is likewise symbolic, pointing to something beyond words. We use words to try to describe God, and we use these images to try to understand Him, but we realize that they're all just pointing us to, to a bigger and greater reality of who God is. Gary Jones writes that when a person begins speaking with unequivocal certainty about God, this is a sure sign that the person is no longer speaking about God. Instead, we're speaking about some idea that we have. So let's go back to one of our opening questions for a moment. How does Scripture help us understand and possibly misunderstand who God is? Well, it helps us understand God by giving us language and imagery so we can begin to approach God in the first place. It gives us the, the pictures. It gives us the, the words that, so we can begin to interact with God. 
but it causes us to misunderstand by sometimes giving us the impression that to know God is simple, straightforward, and a feat that can be accomplished with certainty and without the application of faith. Believing in God, knowing God, is an act of faith. Now, with all of these caveats firmly in place, let's return to that first verse from Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One little gift I got for Christmas in an extended family exchange was a copy of National Geographic magazine. And I think the reason, well, I know the reason the person bought this issue was for me, was that the title story was called The Bible Hunters. And it had this big spread in the middle about the archaeological discoveries, about you know, manuscripts of the Bible. And it, it was fascinating. Like, it's really interesting to, to read about this, how incredible it is, these different findings that, uh, that show us these early copies of the Scriptures and how it really just helps uh, the, the Christian story story have come together. It's really fascinating stuff. But I decided when I picked up the magazine, I was like, I don't want to just read the thing that I'm like really interested in. I'm actually going to read this magazine from start to finish, a National Geographic. I don't think I've ever done that in my life. And it was fantastic. I learned about all kinds of things. I learned about the Pumas of Patagonia. I learned about palm oil production in Western Africa. I learned about people diving to the bottom of the lake in Yellowstone National Park and discovering things they've never seen before. I learned about whale hunting in Alaska. It was just fascinating. And as I was reading this and writing this sermon on God as the creator, I was just like in awe of how incredibly broad this created world is and how narrow, what a narrow strip of it that we live and exist in. And reading this page about all these people and all these animals and all this amazing creation of the world around and I think that as we read this story, this is something that we have to keep in mind. We're talking a lot about this month about who God is and understanding who we are in relation to him, but there's this bigger picture of creation that we can't fully set aside. It's important for us to know about and to care for God's created world. Now, when we think about this story from Genesis chapter 1, some will insist that we need to read every word of what follows as if we are reading a scientific textbook describing an exact series of events along a timeline. And all of this despite the fact that, as I hope you heard this morning, this is clearly written as a poem, not an eyewitness account. This is the language in there. You notice the repetition, you know, that we find in these first pages of, of the Bible. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be an expanse. And God said, let the water. And at the end of each section, God says that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. This is a beautiful poetic encounter with the creation story. But what are we supposed to do with this? Where does this poem come from? Where did its author, traditionally understood to be Moses, get this information? It's not like he was conducting interviews with people who were there or analyzing geological records, and he most certainly wasn't there himself watching the creation unfold. So where did these words come from? How did Moses know what to write to record in Scripture? I've kind of thought that maybe a helpful way for us to think about this beginning of Genesis is a similar way that we might think about the book of Revelation, which is the other end of the Bible, and which is where we'll end up actually at the end of December of 2019. Because when we think about Revelation, we realize that God was trying to show humanity something significant about where the world is heading. And I believe that as we read these early verses of Genesis, we're reading something that God is trying to show us about the beginning of our world as well. 
God has revealed something to humanity about our past and our future that's beyond our comprehension, yet it's important for us to grapple with in order to understand who we are, why we're here, and where we're going. Personally, I don't believe we're meant to understand every detail about how our story began or every detail about how it will one day end, but I do believe the Bible helps us to understand who we are and why we're here and where we're going. Ever since I started reading Genesis, I've understood that there are two main takeaways. God is, and God is the creator. Those are the two things that I think we really need to take from this story, that there is a God, and that he is a creator of all that is. Questions about how this happened and when it happened can be fun questions to ask, but they become dangerous questions if they distract us from the main point of what the author of Genesis was communicating. In the words of our call to worship, we live in a world infused with the presence of God. Like, is that not what you get when you hear the words that Mel read for us earlier? That this world is just teeming with God's creativity. Now, the first time we find the title of this morning's sermon, the all caps Lord God, you know what I mean, the little L-O-R-D, all in capital letters in the Old Testament, the first time we come across that is in the second creation narrative. The what? That's right, the second creation narrative. Genesis 1, which Mel read for us, is the, the first creation narrative, and then there's a second one that we find in Genesis chapter 2. There are two different versions of the creation story, which you'd think would put arrest the idea that this was supposed to be a precise accounting. But I want to read a few verses that pick up where Mel left off a little while ago. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, if Genesis 1 tells us something about who God is, Genesis 2 tells us about who we are in relation to the Creator. Every one of us receives the breath of life from our Creator. In the last four months of 2018, we had a number of new additions to our community here. Shay, Ingrid, Elormi, Joey, Simon, Danielle, all these little babies entering our world, being given names by their parents. Names much like the ones that we have on our stickers this morning. Names that for a lot of us, names are, that our parents gave us. Now, in some cases, maybe you, you didn't like the name your parent gave you, and at some point on your journey, you changed it to something else. Or perhaps you were brought into a new family at some juncture in your journey, and your new family gave you a different name than the one you were first given. But we all carry these names with us, and the name helps us understand who we are. The opening verses of Genesis help us understand something significant about God, but they also help us understand something significant about ourselves, that we are created in the image of God, that we are created by the breath of God. I read an article maybe a month or so ago about this Chinese scientist who had uh, shared something at this conference on genetics, and he had actually, uh, this is the first known case of someone altering the DNA um, of a human being. And so he implanted this, this egg and, and there is this, this human that is, has now had someone has tinkered with their DNA 
um, right from the very beginning. And, and the scientific community was up in arms about this. Like, you can't do this. You can't mess with this. Because I think there's, there's something in us that just believes that, that we shouldn't be playing this role of creator. I'll go back to the end of chapter 1 of Genesis for a moment here. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. When you hear words like these about being created in the image of God, are you able to embrace them? Are you able to accept them? Do you believe at the beginning and at the end of every day that you were created in the image of God? Or does that require just too much faith for you? I hope that it can be encouraging for you this morning that this is our story, that we are created in the image of a loving God. Frederick Buechner writes, whatever else it means to say that God created us in his image, I think it means that even when we cannot believe in him, even when we feel spiritually bankrupt and deserted by him, His mark is deep within us. That's a beautiful image for us to think about. God's mark is deep within us, even when we can't seem to sense him near us. But believing in God isn't enough. We must also have faith enough to believe that we have been crafted, created, molded, shaped, and formed with purpose in a great cosmic act of love. Donald Miller writes, If I have a hope, it's that God sat over the dark nothing and wrote you and me specifically into the story, and put us with the sunset and the rainstorm, as if to say, enjoy your place in my story. The beauty of it means you matter, and you can create within it even as I have created you. And if God's mark is deep within us, then God's mark is also deep within our neighbor. Our neighbor here in Waterloo, but also our neighbor across our country and around our world. There's no one who doesn't have this this mark of God in their lives. There's no one who is not created in the image of God. This isn't something that we can just think about ourselves and realize about ourselves, but we have to apply it to all of God's creation. There's this great question that booms out in Isaiah chapter 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. This is an announcement that we're encouraged to share and to proclaim, to let everyone know that God is the creator of the world and God has created every single one of us in his image. The opening chapter of our Bibles levels the playing field. God is not the creator of the Jewish race or of the Christian community or any single group of people. God is the creator of all. As the Orthodox monk, Father Maximus, writes, the greatest miracle is that people still believe in God. We think about our culture, and we think about how things have changed so much, even in recent decades. It is an incredible miracle to think about people like us who still have faith. But on the heels of belief must come a response, which is that we gather around week in and week out. How will we respond to the fact that there is a God who is our creator? That's what a church is about. It's about a community of people seeking the answer to that question. How do we live in response to the fact that there is a God and he is our creator? At our upcoming winter retreat day that Graham mentioned earlier, we're going to dive deeper into what it looks like for us to reflect the image of God to the people and to the world around us. But I want to close on a slightly different note. I want to, in a sense, contradict some things that I've said this morning by referring to another passage. It's one that Graham read for us in December 
as we were going through our series, reading the opening lines of each of the Gospels. And Graham read the opening passage of John's Gospel, which begins exactly like the book of Genesis, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John uses this word, word, which can be really confusing when we read this. This word actually comes from the word logos, that which causes all of life, the kind of energizing spirit of the world or the universe or the cosmos or whatever. It was this, this kind of Greek phrase that was meant to say that the thing that undergirds everything and all of existence, this word was in the beginning, was God. And then John says miraculously, this word who was in the beginning creating the world took on flesh in Jesus. And so as much as we have to understand that, that we can't put God in a box, we can't nail him down, we can't define him specifically, we also have to wrestle with the fact that as John goes on to say in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And so this is the other beautiful part of this story, that God does not remain this unknown entity, this unknowable figure, but he actually enters into our world and in Christ shows us who God is. So as we read about Jesus and we hear his stories, as we watch his life and reflect on his death and resurrection, we are getting the closest picture of our God that we can get. It's a beautiful part of the Christian story for sure. It's in Jesus that we are most accurately able to know the God of all creation. So how we respond. Close with this, a challenge, if you will, from N.T. Wright. He says, when we begin to glimpse the reality of God, the natural reaction is to worship him. Not to have that reaction is a fairly sure sign that we haven't yet really understood who he is or what he's done. And so that's why we're starting off the year this way. We're going to explore who God is and what he's done in hopes that it will inspire us to worship and to live our lives in response. I invite you to stand. I'm going to close with a word of prayer before we head off to our discussion groups where we'll spend the next 25 minutes or so discussing some of these themes that I've introduced this morning. God, it seems humbling and almost unbelievable to be able to now speak to you. Uh, here we've been reading about your creation of this world. We've been reading about just how, in a sense, unknowable you are, and yet you invite us to come to you, to be in relationship with you. It is this powerful paradox. And God, this morning we embrace it, and we say, God, help us to know what it looks like to worship you, what it looks like to reflect your image to the world around us. And God, for those who are here this morning maybe struggling with a belief in you, um, those the rest of us who gather around as their community of faith, we just stand with them in their wonder and in their questioning. For those this morning, God, who might be struggling with the idea of accepting that they were actually created with value, that they were actually created out of love, God, I pray and, and the rest of us in this community stand with those as a reminder 
that their life is valuable, was created intentionally and with purpose by a loving God. And so God, for each one of us, I pray that you would inspire us to seek you out, to follow you, and to desire to know you more. We thank you for revealing yourself through Christ and for giving us an opportunity to know who you are through his life, death, and resurrection. So with thanksgiving, in Christ's name we pray, amen.